Hey, everybody. Welcome to Friday the 13th, the series. I'm your producer, Robert. And I'm your host, Hill Street. And after a complete, spoiler-filled recap of the episode, we are going to discuss the show you either just learned existed or always wondered how it existed. We promise the answers will be few and far between, because we're just here to have some goofity fun exploring a show that, despite or possibly even because of its faults, isn't good and isn't so bad it's good, but is still somehow oddly charming. Let's dive in, shall we? And before we get going, uh, <laughs> please, I, I imagine you have some thoughts on this episode. I really liked this one. You really liked this one? I really? did. Yeah, I did. I loved um, the like crazy looking aging makeup at the end. It reminded me. You like. Oh, yeah. Oh, I did. <laughs> I'm stunned. We're going to have so much to discuss. Looking forward to it. You know what? It was very nostalgic for me, the makeup, the aging makeup, because there was this episode of, I think it was Goosebumps, and I think it's called Monsterland, if I'm not mistaken. I don't know if it's blasphemous for me to bring up another show, but um, it was very nostalgic for me because it reminded me of this Goosebumps episode called Monsterland, I think it was called, and I remember pet sitting for a friend with my mom and we went over to her house and this Goosebumps episode was on called Monsterland and we were just supposed to stop in for a few minutes after we walked the dog to feed him and everything. But this episode was on and we just sat on our couch and we're like, this looks interesting. And we stayed for the whole episode. And I don't know, it's just a really good memory. And the goofy makeup and that reminded me of this lady's aging makeup and this. So I loved it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Fantastic. Uh... Okay. Yeah, I <laughs> I consider it one of the worst makeup jobs of all time. But then again, I guess I have no nostalgia for a Goosebumps episode or anything else that would endear it to me. But I, <laughs> again, I can't look at that without seeing that I think you should leave sketch. The whole point of which was like, oh, we only did about half this makeup job and then sent the guy out there. <laughs> yeah. I, I saw the correlation for sure. It's once again, it's the tale of two series that this show is where like half the things they do well and half the time it's like, are you gaslighting us? You really think you're going to get us to believe despite what our eyes and our ears are telling us. Yeah. Are you ready to read? I'm ready. Full disclosure, at the time I wrote the episode and recorded it, I had seen, I don't know anymore, four or five episodes, one or the other. But I can say with complete conviction, Hill Street watched episode four just before recording and is now going to read the script for the very first time. And I'm sure nothing will go wrong. Hill Street? Episode four, A Cup of Time. Don't be frightened. I just thought you might like a cup of hot... Okay, I'm going to go back. <laughs> a cup of hot time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Don't be frightened. I thought... Oh, boy. <laughs> okay. Don't be frightened. I just thought you might like a cup of hot tea on a sticky night like this. The second line of the episode, folks. Said to a teenager sleeping on a park bench by a woman shrouded in a black robe. At least, I think that's what's happening, but this is the darkest episode yet, rendering the robed figure practically invisible. Okay, I have to stop right there already. Thank you. I was, like, cranking the brightness on my phone up, like, squinting, like, pulling out binoculars. I was like, what am I looking at? <laughs> so confused. It was so dark. <laughs> yeah, no, I swear I thought it was just an off-screen voice when I first started watching. Like, it was voiceover, like, you know, it's the beginning of the next scene, but they're overlapping the dialogue. <laughs> okay, good. I'm glad it wasn't just me. <laughs> 
Despite having every rational misgiving, the teen ultimately accepts the ornate cup of tea and we get stop motion. Awesome. The plant design on the cup of tea comes to life, grows into a substantial vine, and, regrettably, strangles a homeless teen. I'm very sorry a young life was unceremoniously snuffed out, but stop motion! It's just so charming. Somewhere a guitarist hits the whammy bar and some sweat 80s rock licks transports us to a recording studio. Great read so far, but let's just go back and that is uh, some, at least it's supposed to be some sweet, oh yeah, that's sorry, that typo, that should be sweet 80s rock. That makes a lot more sense. I didn't even think about it. Yep, sorry about that. That should should have been sweet. Uh, sorry, uh, autocorrect or something. Or you can't spell, Robert. It's okay to make mistakes sometimes. No, 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 autocorrect. <laughs> Somewhere, a guitarist hits the whammy bar and some sweet 80s rock licks transport us to a recording studio. And not just any recording studio. Based on the lyrics being sung, I'm pretty sure it's a recording studio from the Mystery Science Theater 3000 episode, Pod People. Bees on pie, burning rubber tires indeed. In the world's darkest green room, Lady Di, a rock and roll prima donna. Oh, damn it. Ex. What is that? Excoriates. You're the worst. <laughs> In the world's darkest green room, Lady Di, a rock and roll prima donna, excoriates her agent or manager for cutting corners on her upcoming benefit concert for the homeless while obsessing over her image in a mirror. The phrase, it's my way or the doorway, is used. Is that a Canadian variant of it's my way or the highway? I had the same question. <laughs> Do you know that expression? It's my way or the highway? Because it's pretty old timey. I feel like it comes even decades before I was born. Oh, yeah. My dad says it all the time. Okay, that makes sense. When you're ready, action. Over in Curious Goods, Mickey and Ryan the Lion banter about music while Jack Marshak performs chemistry experiments at his desk. You know, he's something of a scientist himself. Once again, proving himself the most learned and valuable member of the team and the person who should have inherited Uncle Lewis's store. Enter Birdie, their 60-year-old social worker... Hmm. I had intended to explain how she was related to the gang, but we are never told. She waltzes in like she's always been a part of the show, with no proper introduction or explanation. She's delightful, but feels like the kind of character you interject in season 6 or so to breathe new life into a dying series. She's presented as a possible love interest for Jack Marshak, but Mickey suspects he isn't interested, and based on what we learned about Jack and Uncle Lewis in episode one, that does not surprise me. I was going to suggest that the actress who plays Birdie is probably 40 playing 60, but no. According to IMDb, she's a remarkably young-looking 60, and is not only still alive today, but still working in animation. Bravo. Turns out Jack, just for fun, is creating a protein drink that has the side effect of being an aphrodisiac. Given the fitness craze of the 80s, he could probably retire on the protein angle alone, but, and I rarely say this, I agree with Ryan the Lion that he should be focusing on the aphrodisiac element. Seems like this project could and should have been a subplot of the previous Cupid episode, but I guess I can headcanon that he was inspired by those events to develop it now. Episode 2 had a pointless insert shot of rats, and this bit of business provides pretext for an unnecessary insert shot of mice. Seems like padding and a waste of money on an animal handler, but we'll see later if there's anything better this time of money could have been spent on. 
In a surprisingly somber exchange, Bertie reveals she's the social worker of the young girl we saw strangled in the park and has lost sleep over having to identify the body. As they discuss other recent stranglings and the disappearance of an elderly woman, the conversation turns to class inequality as the police aren't motivated to solve the murders. Ryan the Lion proceeds to lean on a counter, which leaves him mostly obscured by an old cash register and is a choice the director should have discouraged. I'm so sorry. I know you're angry about that, but uh, hey, I calls him like I sees him. <laughs> Making good on their promise to Birdie to talk to the police, Mickey and Ryan just barge into an autopsy room to confront Lieutenant Fishbein? Fishbein. Mickey and Ryan just barge into an autopsy room to confront Lieutenant Fishbein, who asserts he can't solve a string of unrelated murders without a witness, so not real big on forensic evidence, I guess. Seems like kind of a slap in the face to the coroner diligently working right in front of you. Also, like polygraph tests, eyewitness testimony is now considered one of the worst forms of evidence, but he's a man of his time, so I'll let that slide. I know I shouldn't like this man, but I kind of do, possibly because it doesn't feel like he'd be out of place on an episode of Homicide, Life on the Street. I could definitely see this man giving Detective Munch a hard time about his conspiracy theories. I have to say, I liked him too. Also, I appreciated that he was one of the only characters ever to call them out on their shit, because they always do ridiculous stuff and people kind of let them get away with it, but he was like, what the hell are you doing? But anyway, I'm sure we'll get to that. Yeah, he's not a bad guy, right? I mean, it, I mean he kind of seems like like the stick-in-the-mud, stuff-shirt Dean that you shouldn't like, but I'm like he's just doing his job. And yeah, he, he calls out our heroes for, I don't know, waltzing casually into the middle of an autopsy, not even trying to pass themselves off as officials or, you know, not wearing any costume, no fake badges. Mickey's casual, Ryan's wearing a t-shirt, but here they go, marching into an autopsy mid-vivisection. Breaking news from the future. I use the word vivisection here because it's both vivid and fun to say. Then, weeks later, apropos of nothing, it suddenly occurred to me that it begins a bit like both the Italian word vivere and the Spanish word vivir, both of which mean to live. So I looked it up, and yes, vivisections are performed on living organisms, kind of the opposite of what's occurring here. So fair enough, internet pedants. I should have used dissection. You've won the battle, but not the war. We now return you to your regularly scheduled podcast, already in progress. Oh, I thoroughly enjoyed it. It might have been my favorite scene. They do ridiculous stuff all the time where they go places where they don't belong and they often don't get called on it. And they just walk into an autopsy room and go at the cop like, hey, have you noticed there's been a lot of murders in that park recently? And he was like, yeah, kind of my job. Who the hell are you? And they're like, we're just concerned citizens or whatever the hell they said. And I was like, this is so inappropriate. They would immediately be pushed out of the room, possibly brought up on charges. I don't know. And and he was just like, wow, you should consider a career in law enforcement for putting that together. He was so sarcastic. I ate it up. I loved it. You know who he is? He is any character outside of the gang in any episode of It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. Yes. Totally. He's any outside character that just grounds the whole thing and just looks at these people like, you people are lunatics. He gives that outside audience POV. Exactly. <laughs> Ryan proceeds to steal evidence from the dead teen's autopsy shroud in the form of some sticks and leaves before they're finally tossed out. 
Outside Curious Goods, a woman in white notices the store as she walks past, starts to move towards the entrance, then the scene cuts and she isn't seen again. Okay... Jack Marshak determines the leaves are from a long-extinct Irish plant known as Swapper's Ivy, and that a teacup bearing the same plant was sold by the shop. In searching for the purchaser, Mickey and Ryan investigate a house or apartment building the show wants us to believe is some combination of old, abandoned, and scary, but doesn't read as any of those. Okay, I gotta say, I had the exact same thought. They kept being like, this place is horrible. And I was like, it looks fine. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't even look like a slum. Like, it doesn't even look like a crack house or something. It just looks like a building. I know, I was so confused. I was like, again, I gotta turn the gain up on my phone here and see what they're looking at. But it looked totally normal to me. <laughs> to show you... <laughs> The show you have to watch with a boosted gain of 50. <laughs> oh, boy. the show that requires its own television settings. I love it. <laughs> Case in point, they have a flashlight they do use, but for no purpose as the building has functioning lights. In fact, it's so well lit, there's absolutely no excuse for Mickey to walk into some incongruously dangling ivy and scream. Conversely, there's a nicely staged surprise Murphy bed reveal, complete with skeleton. So additional points for originality. I did enjoy that. You like a good Murphy bed? I do. I am a fan of Murphy beds. I think they're fun, and I can't say I've ever seen one drop with a skeleton in it. I just thought that was fun. Yeah, it was great, wasn't it? Yeah, and his head was all lolled to the side in skeleton form. And then we had a good one-liner from Ryan the Lion, where he's like, he's not fat anymore, or whatever. <laughs> Zing. Oh, too soon, Ryan. Too soon. Ryan had a lot of one-liners in this one. Most of them are cringy, but I like that. Yeah, that was a nice moment. Then again, I do have a penchant for Murphy beds in media, so I might be biased. Hey, me too. Murphy bed twins. <laughs> I admit... Oh, wait. Okay, I have to tell you something actually about that. I... When I moved to New York, I was like really young. I was a teenager. And I was purposely trying to pick a small apartment so that I had to get a Murphy bed because I wanted one so badly. And my dad was like very against Murphy beds and was like, there's no reason to get one here. You don't need it here. And I was like purposely trying to find a small apartment so that my dad felt like I needed one. How That's how crazy teenagers are, I guess. We're a trundle bed household and we always will be. <laughs> Moment of candor here. If you had proposed a Murphy bed when you moved in here, I would have been totally on board. <laughs> Man, I missed my chance. It would have been the excuse I was looking for. I was just too nervous to broach the subject myself. But if you had pushed for Murphy beds, we totally would have Murphy beds in here today. <laughs> that would have been so awesome. I admit, I failed to notice what is likely a leaf or two of Swapper's Ivy around the skeleton's neck on the first viewing, but I don't really feel bad about it given that the stop-motion Ivy resets after each kill, much like two of our three previous haunted antiques, thus eliminating all evidence of the crime. But wait! Come to think of it, that isn't true because Ryan stole some from the corpse of the first victim. So it resets... sort of. I guess that means the Ivy Mickey just walked into is also supposed to be left over from the teacup. So nice foreshadowing show, but I'm really getting some mixed messages here. Regardless, I think we're meant to assume the purchaser of the teacup was the first victim of Old Lady Die. Old Lady Die? Yeah, I think we all suspected her from the moment we met her, and I'm only revealing this a scene or two before the show does. Lady Di was recently an old lady who got her hands on the teacup and started killing with it to become young again. Back to the scene, did she know she was going to kill her brother or was it an accident that resulted in her learning of the teacup's power? 
The latter option seems more likely, but why did she offer him something to drink in his home with his teacup? Shouldn't it have been the other way around? This is so, like, random and not important, but before I saw Lady Di spelled out, I thought it was short for, like, Lady Diana. I didn't realize it was D-I-E, which is, like, a hardcore rock name, I guess, but... Once again, two great minds thinking alike. We're going to get to that later in the script, because, yep, the entire time I'm like, oh, it's an 80s reference to Lady Diana, but nope, Lady Di, D-I-E. Yeah, that's like a hard name. That's funny that you had the same thought. When I saw it spelled out, I was like, and then he like draws a poster of her and like made her look scary. And I was like, oh, he's like doing a pun, like Lady Die. That's funny. And I was like, oh no, that's actually her name. That's anyway. Yeah, it took me a while to realize the reason he's doing it is like aging her up. Basically, that's why he's redrawing her or drawing on top of her, I guess you'd say. Yeah, I thought he was just making her like demonic for some reason. I I didn't come off as aging her for me for a minute but oh, this show it works on so many levels <laughs> since we're stopped here anyway i'll just mention that the question about was it an accident or was this actually like where she learned of the power which we'll never know because the show isn't going to answer it and it's certainly not going to flash back and you know show us but that is really a thing because like the last episode with the cupid statue none of the killers as far as we know have any reason to understand how the object works we didn't even talk about that last episode Anyone who gets it just somehow knows how to use it, which granted fits nicely with your theory that somehow these objects are like radiating a power that just conveys that. But the show certainly does nothing to convey that information. They just, oh, it's a Cupid statue. Oh, I guess I'll use it to seduce women. Mm -hmm. I know. Yeah. The only way that it makes any sense is if somehow these things are calling to killers and kind of seducing them to use them the way they're supposed to be used. You are doing the lion's share of the lifting there, Hill Street. I know. I absolutely am. Also, while we're stopped and talking about things that don't make sense, which we could do for hours, the, I just love the concept of, like, even homeless people are going to have their suspicions. I just love, like, they're, they're in a, the middle of the woods late at night, and someone walks up with a teacup of liquid, and it's like, do you want some hot tea? And they're like, sure. No questions. Like, I, it's just, it's so ridiculous. It's not like they're at a soup kitchen and she offers them tea in a teacup. She just walks up with a teacup and just hands it to them and they just drink the liquid in it. The And, you know, this will come in later, but it's one thing when she someone takes a bottle of alcohol and pours it into the cup. That made a lot more sense to me. Being like, oh, you want some of my liquor? Here, I'll pour it into this cup. I could see some a homeless person drinking that a lot faster than I could see them being like, sure, I'll drink tea out of this cup that you just walked up to me with. This issue was such a big deal in my mind and has stuck with me for so long and bothers me so much, has become the new motorcycle in the rain in my brain. <laughs> I actually made a grid that we are going to discuss later that tries to get to the bottom of what was the thought process with offering strangers tea or booze in the park that's going to be our one-time-only segment for this episode, and uh, good. I'm, I'm sorry, but I'm glad it bothered you, too, because we're going to dive. Oh, we're going to take off our shoes, stick our toes in the sands of this question, and we're going to try to get to the bottom of it. Okay, good. I'm looking forward to it. After some filler of Lady Di continuing to be a diva and obsessed about her appearance... Okay, one more thing I'm going to bring up before I get back into this. Also, I'm like, maybe I missed this, because sometimes you first viewing you miss things, but... Was Lady Di famous when she was young the first time? (laughs) (laughs) 
Oh boy. Uh, yeah, I've got several pages later dedicated. <laughs> okay, I am gonna. I am going to. I can answer that question definitively, Hill Street, and I do. And it took me several repeated viewings and a lot of parsing of little bits and pieces from throughout the episode to reconstruct what actually happened here. But save that thought. Oh, my sweet summer child. Okay. We are going to discuss that <laughs> issue in depth. Okay. Okay. I'm very curious to get to that part because I have questions. <laughs> I've got answers and they are going to blow your mind. Okay. Okay. After some filler of Lady Di continuing to be a diva and obsess about her appearance, her beleaguered agent or manager discovers a young girl stealing food from the Benefit Concert's craft services table and actually tells her it's okay. She repays the kindness by stealing his wallet, then running off into the park, where she encounters the hooded figure from the opening, offering tea to what's probably supposed to be a drunk homeless guy on a bench. From this point on, every victim and potential victim is an alcoholic man offered booze in the teacup. It's almost like they filmed the first kill, realized how little sense it made, and course-corrected while in production. Adding some credence to this theory is her line about this night being chilly, which makes so much more sense in the opening as concerns offering a cup of hot tea to a perfect stranger. Did I just claim something about any of this makes sense? As nothing is done to disguise the hooded figure's voice, we can be fairly certain at this point it's Lady Di. Although the hooded figure killed a teen girl earlier, this new homeless girl must be just a little too young to qualify because the figure won't give her any tea when she asks for it. I brought this up during episode one, but why do writers think children like tea so much? Instead, the figure gives the girl a bracelet and off she goes. Pro tip, don't hand out souvenirs when committing murder. Yeah, it's when the girl walked up and asked for tea, I got very curious. I was like, oh, are we going there? This is dark. Is she gonna kill this little girl? And then she was like, no, 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 this is for adults only. Beat it, kid. And the girl was like, but I want it. And then she gave her the bracelet. I was like, interesting. So this lady has no soul and kills people to stay young, but she draws the line at, what, 10 and below? I'm curious. I'm curious where she says, no, no, too far. Yeah, did she not have any money on her? Like, oh, take this bracelet, something that can definitively connect me to the crime, but not, you know, five bucks. Yeah, very weird. Also, I'm not, you know, I admit I'm not great with ages, but... Did you think that this girl was much younger than the teen in the park at the beginning? I would, I mean, again, beginning super dark, but I would say the girl at the beginning was probably somewhere between 14 to 16. And I would say this girl looked like she was 9 or 10. Yeah, okay, that's about what I would have estimated. So, yeah, I guess that's enough to make a difference. I mean, I, frankly, I thought the teen at the beginning is like the darkest part of this whole episode, given the age. Yeah, and it was also like the most graphic murder, probably, too. Yeah, exactly. Which, again, hence my grid that we'll get to later. <laughs> okay. Just uh, just one quick aside. Did you find it kind of an interesting little moment when the agent or manager catches this girl clearly stealing food from the table and is just kind of cool with it? I mean, I know she's young, but don't you expect an agent manager character to be, you know, all about the bottom line and, you know... How dare you steal for us? But he's, he's super cool about it. Like, he's a really cool guy. He is. They humanized him quite a bit. They definitely made Lady Die the asshole. And he's just, like, trying to do his best, trying to please her. He's very patient with her attitude. And then he's nice to the little girl. Yeah, he they did make him a cool guy, which I liked. Yeah, he reminded me a lot of Mr. Sim, where it's like, oh, he's actually a really cool guy. And unfortunately, he goes through this whole thing without having any sense of like what's actually going on yes yep blissfully unaware yeah 
In a shocking twist, the show abandons any pretense of keeping Lady Di's identity a secret and simply cuts to her reaction as she watches the drunk man get strangled by a stop-motion plant. She doesn't even slowly pull back her hood or anything. We just cut to her face, and in a huge continuity error, the hood is suddenly back so far on her head it's barely staying up. This is like Mickey trying to pass as a male monk levels of hood far back on the head. I had the same thought. The girl witnesses the death, and on this legitimately dramatic reveal, pregnant with possibility, we abruptly cut to commercial. Commercial break! Some shows have a monster of the week. This series has a curio of the week. And so do we. Believe me, no one paid us for the following endorsements. And, once they hear the show, it's more likely they'll pay us to retract them. We just want to share some cool things with you while simultaneously using our platform to give a little free promotion to those without a massive advertising budget. So Hill Street, what is your Curio of the Week? My Curio of the Week is this new horror... I have a really hard time with the word horror. Just gonna throw that out there before I even start this one, but... Shouldn't come up much in what we do. There's this new horror theater company called Postmortem Players, and they are just really cool. Like, first of all, horror theater company right off the bat is going to have my attention. I like anything horror, and I just haven't really seen a theater company that's only horror. And I, I respect that they're doing something so different. They try to pick, from what I've seen so far, shows that I have not even really heard of, for the most part. They're, they try to pick anything that's, you know, spooky-based, They've also written some originals from what I've seen that were all very good. Everything they've put out has been very good, very well done. And I think it's run by, it's run by one guy. His name is Chris Stonnell. Shout out to Chris Stonnell. It's all super well done. Their shows are high quality. They have amazing costumes. They did a musical last year where, uh, called Monster Songs. And all of their costumes for it were just great. I don't know. I just was very impressed. I've been very impressed with everything I've seen there. So shout out to Postmortem Players. I respect what you're doing. I love the spooky vibe. I'm very excited to see what you do next. Where can they be found? Looks like they've been putting on their shows mostly in Concord, North Carolina. Copy that. My curio of the week is the book Canada by Mike Myers. Part autobiography, part thank you letter to the country that shaped him, Canada might have been interesting enough as your typical lighthearted look at the shockingly mild-mannered individual behind so many over-the-top characters, but rises to something more profound as it explores the influence of geography and culture on shaping our personalities and our destinies. Mike recounts an origin story that might be called the quintessential Canadian dream, if such a term existed. It's basically a bizarro version of the American dream, in which not rugged individualism, but a strong societal safety net led directly to his achievement of fame and fortune. That might be the last thing you'd expect from a man who seems to prefer standing alone under the spotlight, performing comedy so specific and obscure no large audience could possibly find it funny, sometimes failing, but more often than not creating pop culture icons. But if I learn one thing from his book, Canada is a land of contrasts. You okay? Do you need any water? Are your voice doing okay? My voice always struggles. I'm trying to talk up here because my vocal coach told me that I talk in the gravel too much. And she said I need to talk up here. So I'm trying to talk a little more like a Disney princess. Trying. Because she said I'm damaging my voice talking so low. So... We'll see. So this is actually for the benefit of your voice? Yeah, trying to talk a little bit higher in my register so that I'm not 
putting so much damage on my vocal cords. So trying. Hopefully it doesn't sound crazy. And she actually used the phrase talk in the gravel. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's like a, a, I've heard other vocal coaches use that too. Like this, um, here I'll, like if I talk down here, do you hear all that sounds gravelly? Oh, uh, I mean, it sounds deeper. I, I wouldn't quite go to gravel. You don't exactly sound like <laughs> you smoke two packs a day. <laughs> yeah, but I'm supposed to talk up here. This is much healthier for my vocal cords. So I'm trying to do that as much as possible, even if it sounds a little strange. Uh oh, have you been enrolled in charm school again? Yes. Pinky up. Has some rich person made a bet to see if they can turn you into a princess? I'm going to have my coming out party soon. You got to send me videos of working on your posture. Oh, that can't be saved. <laughs> the ship has sailed on that one? Oh, yeah. My head leads my body. Like, a foot ahead of the rest of my body. Very presidential. <laughs> God. Oh, my God. That was so good. I'm sorry, what did you say? This um, older gentleman who works at our theater, who's just the kindest soul ever... He went and we painted the set yesterday and he went early today to go reset all the furniture for me, which was just so nice of him. He's such a gem. Oh, very cool. I guess he'll be our next curio of the week. Seriously, he's just the kindest man. I just adore him. All right, you ready? Is it, it's Fishbine? <laughs> yeah, it's Fishbine, which apparently is a name people can have. It's a horrible name. All right. Okay, stretching. Oh, my foot's asleep. Uh. All of you angry fishbines of the world can send your angry emails to Hill Street at... The next day, Lieutenant Fishbine shows the drunk man's corpse to a very jaded birdie who, with a polite smile, indicates she doesn't know him as if responding to a waiter asking if she'd like more coffee right after she took a bite of a blueberry scone. Can I get that one more time? I hit smile a little bit bigger to emphasize, like, you're looking at a dead body. Given the context, it's weird how chipper she seems with a polite smile, indicates she doesn't know him as if responding to a waiter, asking if she'd like more coffee right after she took a bite of a blueberry scone. Um, excuse me? Possible second detective sitting on the murder bench? Should you be doing that? Lounging languidly? Languidly? Languidly, yes. Should you be doing that? Lounging languidly on the crime scene? I know it helps you see the crime through the killer's eyes, but still. The homeless girl from the previous scene shows up at the crime scene to beg food. Beg for food, I assume? I was fine with beg food. Okay. But you can, you can add a four. Yeah, sure. You can make it four. The homeless girl from the previous scene shows up at the crime scene to beg for food from... Yeah, I was just worried about the repeated F sounds or... But yeah, good. However it's comfortable. The homeless girl from the previous scene shows up at the crime scene to beg for food from Birdie and Mickey. And wouldn't you know it, Birdie recognizes the bracelet as belonging to the elderly woman who went missing. Can we go one more time from the homeless girl? Okay. Just a little bit bigger energy. Just really savoring the ridiculousness of what's happening. The homeless girl from the previous scene shows up at the crime scene to beg food from Birdie and Mickey. And wouldn't you know it, Birdie recognizes the bracelet as belonging to the elderly woman who went missing. Mickey happens to ask if the missing woman was connected to the deceased man who purchased the teacup. And sure enough, they're brother and sister. The homeless girl rats out Lady Di, though not by name, and in a continuing affront to Mickey, overpowers her to make her escape. Why no one gives chase, including Ryan who just showed up, is left unexamined. Lieutenant Fishbine seems suspicious of our heroes, but I'm guessing this shot is just for padding and will never pay off. We again learn Ryan is a Lady Die fan, but when he turn, <coughs> sorry, I'm struggling with my voice. We again learn Ryan is a Lady Die fan when he turns up the Winchester Mobile's radio to listen to her singing a rock cover of "I Am Not Kidding," "I'm a Little Teapot." Take as long as you need to let that sink in. 
Now, I'm aware this show didn't have budget enough for our heroes to wear costumes when pretending to be police officers or sneaking into a hospital autopsy room, so they weren't going to write an original song that defies genres even while reinventing them, but even at the conception stage, this is absurd. Once again, I need to drop a reference to Mystery Science Theater 3000, specifically Dr. Forrester's public domain karaoke machine. To quote James Rolfe, just to celebrate their failure, Birdie reveals the song is an old nursery rhyme. Yeah, we know. And that the missing elderly woman used to sing it. Maybe I've seen too many horror films, but if I was in the apartment of an old lady who randomly sung I'm a Little Teapot, I would jump out the nearest window before she stuck a knitting needle in my eye. Mickey, Ryan, and Jack compare a photo of the missing elderly woman to a Lady Die album cover and find them to be identical twins separated by about 40 years. Quick aside, only now, in seeing Lady Die written out, do I realize Die is spelled D-I-E, and is actually a pretty clever pun. A pun nonetheless, but a pretty clever one. Thank you. I love that we both thought Lady Die was a reference to Lady Diana. Yeah, I mean, yeah, Lady Die is, but yeah, I like what they did. When Mickey questions how they could be the same person, Jack cites an unrelated legend as proof. Although this is a huge fallacy we see all too often these days, Jack exists in a reality in which haunted dolls are real, so I'll cut him some slack. Conspiracy enthusiasts, what's your excuse? Birdie comes in, dressed half her age, and again asks out Jack, who claims he has to get back his experiment. Little strange that three of this episode's four main characters are dressed mostly in black, but they wear it well, so I'll allow it. In fact, Ryan the Lion looks surprisingly good in all black, but who doesn't? Birdie once again looks for any opportunity to play the ageism card and storms out. With her gone, Jack returns, and we get one of the show's many moments of being good, but not great, with three characters staged in depth. One second, my light is flickering, yep. and it drives me nuts. Okay. It just randomly will be like, mm, I'm tired. With her gone, Jack returns, and we get one of the show's many moments of being good, but not great, with three characters staged in depth. But Jack is just a little bit too much in front of Mickey and Ryan, crowding them slightly, and Mickey and Ryan almost on the same plane instead of having Ryan a little closer to the camera. So close. Outside a radio station where Lady Di is being interviewed, the homeless girl, who really gets around, sees a poster of Lady Di and realizes she's a murderer, although I still contend her greatest crime is turning I'm a Little Teapot into a power ballad. Just then, Mickey and Ryan the Lion roll up in the Winchester Mobile pretending to be a limo driver and magazine journalist, respectively. Why the fans outside flock to them like they're rock stars is unknown, and why security lets them in without them having to flash the false identification Jack said he would make for them is also unknown. Mickey is wearing a black leather hat that I'll generously put in the category of actual disguise, but it's no chauffeur's tuxedo. The actor playing the DJ has a great radio voice and is completely believable in the part, and the wild shirt he's wearing is intense but totally appropriate. Seeing him sit there opposite Lady Di in her full rock ensemble makes me wonder why the supporting characters get the best wardrobe and hair and makeup on this show. Mickey and Ryan burst in to ask her about the missing elderly woman during a break in the interview. I mean, the interview might be over, but Lady Di isn't getting up to leave, so we assume she'll be on the air again. What if she was on the air when they burst in? Did they give any thought to this plan? Apparently not, because they're immediately thrown out of the studio. But first, we get a disorienting cut in which Mickey and Ryan the Lion being pushed out one studio door is followed by a different studio door closing. The second shot is Lady Di sneaking away. But she's only visible for a fraction of a second, so if you blink, it 
feels like a jump cut between Mickey and Ryan being forced out and the door suddenly being pulled shut behind them. Lady Di, so freaked out by looking slightly older, runs out into a back alley where she bumps into the homeless girl who steals the teacup from her, then almost collides with Birdie, who confronts her about her true identity, before running away. Man, sometimes this show is padded and sometimes it just races from plot point to plot point. Case in point, this scene is followed by one in which Mickey and Ryan argue about who's going to drive, culminating with Ryan again flirting with her and Mickey calling him a chauvinist. Nice to finally see her pushing back, although I think her comment was about him driving and not his innuendo about her looking better than him in the chauffeur's outfit. Unsurprising, this show likes shooting in parks. Nice, cheap, abundant parks. Oh look, we're in one now. Lady Di is about to murder a man sleeping on a bench. Possibly the same bench. And once again, I'm not sure if it's to the show's credit or not, but these presumably homeless men do not read as homeless. The little bit of newspaper covering this man suggests he's supposed to be indigenous. Indi indigenous? Is that right? Indigent. The little bit of newspaper covering this man suggests he's supposed to be indigent, but like the last victim, he just looks like an average middle-class guy who's had one too many. Likewise, Lady Di is supposed to read as older, but looks instead like she's performing in a stage adaptation of The Cabinet of Dr. Calgary. <laughs> Caligari. Caligari? Oh, interesting. Later in a scene with echoes of episode one and young Mistress Mary, the homeless girl sings, I'm a little teapot and pretends to drink from a teacup she knows harbors a dark power and was used to strangle a man to death. The implications of this subtext make this scene far creepier than it has any right to be. Commercial break! If you like the horror genre as much as we do, you can preview the horror comic book Requiem for a Psychopath right now for free at the Inner Demon Entertainment website. Imagine a world in which horror film slashers are real, then imagine a troubled teen bringing one out of retirement to help him take revenge on his bullies. It was written by me and drawn by friend of the show, Stephen Yu. Again, that's Requiem for a Psychopath on the Inner Demon Entertainment website. And if you dig it, Please either review and rate it five stars on Amazon, or don't rate and review it at all. Ratings of less than five stars send the algorithm into murder mode for some reason. Thanks. I hope you enjoy it. After a commercial break, the show cements itself as a precursor to The X-Files, with Mickey stating she has a harder time than Ryan believing in the supernatural. For no good reason, I never watched The X-Files, even though it seemed made just for me. But I knew enough about it to always wonder how a show with that premise could have a character who didn't believe, so I can't really litigate Mickey now. I can understand Ryan the Lion putting on a jacket, but Mickey appears to have changed jackets and skirts during the write-over. Not really sure why, except she would be invisible on camera in all black, given how dark these park scenes are. I could be wrong, as it wasn't until I scrubbed through the episode at two times the normal playback speed, but I think I heard a subtle riff on I'm a Little Teapot woven into the musical score of the Spark scene. Yes, you did, because I noticed it too, and I was like, man, they are pushing this song. I will admit that I did not catch it the first time, not the second time, probably not the third or fourth, but one of the many, many times I was scrubbing back through the episode looking for something specific, it was, it was only when I was scrubbing through it like two times normal speed and it played a little bit faster that I'm like, hey, wait a minute. Yeah, that's funny. Maybe it's because I play piano or something, but when, when uh, I was listening, then that park scene, I was like, oh my God, they are still playing this song in the background, just going, da, 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 da. 
was like, oh my God. Yeah, and it's not even like it was a song they paid for. Like, it's not like they were getting their money's worth out of it. Yeah, it's not like they wrote it and they were like, we really need to push this original we wrote. Exactly. You are far more musically inclined than I, so I'm not surprised you caught that the first time through, but good. That's another example of us just confirming we're not crazy, as this show constantly asks you to do. (laughs) We need that. I think I heard a subtle riff on I'm a Little Teapot woven into the musical score of the park scene. If so, all due credit to the music department for going above and beyond. In a nice misdirect, the show uses first-person point of view for the very first time, making us think Lady Di might be sneaking up on the homeless girl, asleep on a blanket in the woods, only to reveal it's actually Mickey with Ryan right behind her. As the girl doesn't want to part with the teacup, the writers do a nice job of keeping the Swapper's Ivy motif alive and have Mickey suggest trading the teacup for a hot meal in a real bed. The girl agrees, and off they go. I guess that's it. They have the haunted teacup. Show over. And 15 minutes early. Huh, weird. Oh, wait. There's already another POV shot of someone watching them walk off together. This probably should have been more impactful if we hadn't seen Birdie in the park a couple minutes before. I guess technically it's not the first POV, because upon watching the opening again, I guess... That one kind of starts as POV, but then uh, Lady Di enters the frame, so a little bit different thing. And also, I can't really determine what's POV or not, because she's so dark in that first scene. Are we just seeing over her shoulder? I don't know. It's all black. So Yeah, exactly. I don't know what's going on in the first scene there, but I had the same thought that I thought that was like a fun change up on how they shot it. Yeah, but this was the first one that read clearly as, okay, this is someone like peering through branches. This is a POV of uh, a voyeur spying on the scene. Right. Back at Curious Goods, Mickey and Ryan make good on their half of the bargain, while a supposedly mysterious figure with blonde hair breaks in and steals the teacup, continuing the tradition of the gang acquiring the haunted object, only to lose it again. I can't put enough air quotes around mysterious as we've only met one character in the whole story with blonde hair. Why they had Birdie put a stocking over her head instead of wearing a hood like Lady Di, I can't imagine because she isn't seen by anyone except us, the audience, who knows she's the only blonde character, although I wouldn't put it past the show to introduce someone new with only 13 minutes to go. Much like that motorcycle in episode 1, I'm not sure why Ryan the Lion trips at the base of the stairs only to get back up and proclaim he's fine, as it makes zero functional difference and he lands off screen so we don't even see it. Well, I guess the thief's identity wasn't supposed to be a secret because a taxi stops for a woman in a trench coat and nylon stocking mask and Birdie reveals her face as she requests a lift to the park. So what is motivating this theft? I mean, it's pretty clear Birdie is going to use a teacup the same way Lady Di is, but at no point we've seen has Birdie learned of its power. She might believe Lady Di has somehow de-aged herself, but all she knows about the teacup is that it might be evidence from a murder in the park. And don't tell me Lady Di's number one hit song, I'm a Little Teapot, connects those dots. First, that's a well-known nursery rhyme Lady Di has been singing for years. Second, it's about a teapot, not a teacup. Does Birdie know Curious Goods contains haunted antiques? Maybe. It's possible. But we don't know. Who is this woman, and what is her connection to our cast? Would love to know, show. Feel free to share. Were you as bothered by that as I was? Um, yes. Yeah, I, this, this whole birdie storyline is just very confusing, especially at this point where she takes the cup. I'm like, what? Why? Like, did it have that feeling when she just bursts into the room and starts talking to them? Did it feel like if you've ever been, like, hanging out with some good friends 
and then like it, maybe it's someone's apartment and then a neighbor just walks in and it's like everyone else knows them and you're just like cool who are you yes exactly yeah that and also just the stupidity of ryan putting getting the cup back and just putting it in the most accessible place to steal it second you get home he puts it on a table in front of the window you break into i'm like come on you guys have to secure this stuff you know better it's silly at this point the show could do a better job of not making them act like complete idiots yeah if only you had an entire vault yeah exactly like come on it's stupid In a surprisingly tender scene in which the homeless girl, whose name we learn is Kristen, asks Mickey if the stolen teacup means she can't live at Curious Goods, we learn the show does two things well, practical stunts and casting child actors. Like Sarah Polly, this little girl is really good, and honestly, I wouldn't mind if she became a regular addition to the show, but Mickey gently assures both her and us that isn't going to happen. Bertie finds a drunk transient in the park who looks like he's going to eat her. It's at this moment I realize what a huge risk these women are taking, engaging drunks in a park at night, alone, with nothing for protection save a demonic teacup. There's still murderers, but given the huge risk they're taking, I almost respect their ambition. Bertie has the good sense to offer the man a nightcap instead of tea. Finally! It only took three tries, show, but you finally achieved a plausible interaction. Commercial break! Welcome to Crystal Ball, the segment where we gaze into the future and let time make fools of us all. I have a Crystal Ball question for you. Oh, okay. Please. For the past three episodes, they've been teasing this bizarre dynamic between Ryan the Lion and Mickey. Her name trips me up because I think of it as a male name for some reason, so every time I'm like, wait, is that her name? Yeah, that's her name. They've been teasing the dynamic between Ryan Lyon and Mickey. And he kind of flirts with her and she says no, but she usually says it in kind of a flirty way now. Like at the end of last episode, he said, do you want to go to dinner? And got all up in her face and she's like, in your dreams. But she like pats his face in kind of a flirty way. Do you think that they're ever going to have her given to him at some point? Or do you think they're just going to forever have this weird dynamic between them? Or do you think something will ever actually happen? I don't think they're ever actually going to get together But oddly enough, (laughs) I don't think they're going to get together because they're cousins. I think they're not going to get together because kind of that television trope of you lose all the tension if they get together. I mean, I think they would have to have like thought ahead, planned it out, and then that would be like the last thing that would happen, you know, in the very end of the last season. And the impression I get with this is just that they were more churning out scripts buy the book as quickly as they can. So for that reason, I don't think they're going to get together. How about you? You know, I actually completely agree. Like once again, we're back on the same page. I I don't think they're going to do it. But again, not because they're cousins. I don't think the show's afraid of that at all. I think they've shown that quite clearly. It's not like it's subtle. He literally in the end of this episode gets right up in her face and is like, do you want to go to dinner? Like it looks like he's trying to make out with her. So I don't think they're afraid to go there for that reason. But I do think that it takes away the fun and they're having too much fun with playing with that dynamic. And once they do it, then they can't go anywhere. So if they do it, it would have to be like the last episode. And I doubt they even knew when the last episode would be necessarily. So I'd be surprised. I don't don't think they will. But It is interesting that they don't, they don't let it go. They do something with it in every single episode. So it does feel like they're building to something. So it does cross my mind, like, are they actually going to do this? But 
I'd be very surprised because I think it takes away the fun that the writers are having with it. I still remember just how surprised you were when you read my script and we got to that home stretch part about him asking her on a date and you were like, really? We're actually escalating this thing? Yeah, they, that's what's so strange about it is like in the first episode, we talked about it and it was like, oh, this is kind of a weird kind of silly thing, but whatever. But now I'm like, oh, they're not letting this go. This is like they they make sure to put it in every episode and hit on it so it does feel like it's going somewhere it's really really odd and she wasn't like when whenever when he said do you want to go to dinner all sexy like she wasn't like ew no you're my cousin stop she was like in your dreams and like pet him and i was like bleh I forget, did you, did you watch 30 Rock? Oh, a long time ago. But yeah, I've seen a decent amount of it. Oh yeah, same here. Yeah, there's an episode where Liz is seeing this amazing guy and she's like, okay, but you know, the other shoe is going to fall. What's wrong with this? What's wrong with this? And, and then they discover that in fact, they are distant cousins. One of the jokes is they're trying to figure out like, well, we're pretty distant cousins. We're not like first cousins. Like how close would we have to be before this is okay? And he says something like fifth and she's like, none, zero. Like, <laughs> Not cousins at all. Like That's funny. I guess the commercial break gave Bertie time to reconsider because she takes back the teacup at the last minute and just gives the wino the bottle of booze. He finally speaks, lessening the creep factor somewhat, but the editor again cuts to a close-up in which it looks like he's debating if roasting or braising would be the best way to prepare her. In a shocking bit of continuity, Jack actually fixes the broken window while discussing with Mickey and Ryan whether it was Birdie or an old version of Lady Di who stole the cup. They land on an old Lady Di. In an even more shocking bit of continuity, Birdie spent all night talking to the wino and is still there come morning. It's total padding that showcases a terrible drunk performance from the actor playing the alcoholic, and the shadow of someone moving off camera flickers across the lower left corner of the screen. So if ever a scene could have been cut to make the story stronger, this is it. On her way home, Bertie is stalked by Lady Di, who is so old it's both ridiculous and terrifying. If you want to know what she looks like, watch the prank show sketch from I Think You Should Leave. To try to convey the makeup effect in words, all I can say is unfinished. Birdie phones Ryan and confesses she has something to return, pretty much making the previous scene at Curious Goods completely pointless, except for learning how the window was fixed. The gang rolls up to find Birdie gone, and on the way, Lieutenant Fishbine, probably on stakeout in the park, sees them and follows. Hard cut to Ancient Lady Di chasing Birdie through the woods. Wow, that escalated quickly. I know Birdie is no spring chicken, but it seems like she's far and away the younger, stronger contender in this fight but I guess Lady Di just wants it more. The sad truth is, shooting this at night would have hidden the poor makeup better, been more tense, and prevented the whole thing from being just laughable. Well, laughable until Bertie is bludgeoned to death. Mickey and Ryan pass a perfectly normal playground that proves not all Canadian playgrounds look like something out of a Ringling Brothers fever dream. <laughs> Hashtag not all Canadian playgrounds. Oddly, it sure looks like they're wearing the same clothes as yesterday. Even if they only changed clothes in the Winchester Mobile, they were just in the Winchester Mobile, so no excuse. As soon as they find Bertie's body, Lieutenant Fishbine shows up and puts them under arrest for her murder. Hey, you guy, you were hot on their trail, so if they committed murder while you were actively pursuing them, don't look so smug. But wait! Continuing the show's tradition of characters seeming dead, only to be later revealed alive, Lieutenant Fishbine assures us she isn't dead. Wow. Could have fooled me. 
I don't blame Mickey and Ryan for trying to pin the attack on Lady Di, but they have to know how insane that sounds. Again, I know Lieutenant Fishbine is completely wrong, but given the circumstances, I'm going to call it damn fine police work. But have no fear, my man Jack Marshak is observing from above, like a geriatric Rambo. <laughs> Knowing Lady Di is still around, he puts himself out there as bait. Once again, the decision to have him change clothes is baffling, and I'm not just saying that to deflect from my earlier assertion that they should really wear disguises more often than not at all. I assume the jacket he donned is meant to make him look more homeless, which it doesn't, but the addition of the wig can only be to momentarily fool us, the audience, as Lady Di has never seen him. In fact, moments before, the show took the time to film a blurry first-person POV shot to justify that Lady Di can't see well in her old age. That also was completely pointless. I had a thought about the wig thing. I was thinking that maybe she tries to go for slightly younger people because she's basically zapping their youth. So I was like, maybe he wanted to look younger. I don't know. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I got, well, again, the grid, Hill Street, the grid that we'll get to soon. But other than that teen, the first time out, I think everyone else has been like, well, at least I thought about roughly middle-aged men. Yeah, I know. I don't know. I mean, they didn't really go into it, so... It'll absolutely drive you insane trying to piece together a rhyme or a reason. I, I feel like they were... No, actually, I take that back. They were not trying to work anything out. It, But my mind just wants to connect dots. It wants to see patterns where there are none. And yeah. it drives me mad. Yeah, I don't know. I may, may, I'm sure I'm trying to give them an excuse where there isn't one, but I wondered if how old the person was made a difference because... You would think the younger they are, the more vitality she gets from them, but who knows. I love your logic, and we're going to discuss that when we get to the chart. Absolutely keep that theory uh, on the back burner. Yeah, I'm just not sure, unfortunately, that it'll pan out under the harsh scrutiny of daylight, the brutal reality of reason. Okay. But yeah, there's the total irony that of all the times Mickey and Ryan show up in jeans and a t-shirt, Jack actually wears a disguise for this one. When he doesn't have to. <laughs> yep. Mickey and Ryan show up in, in jeans and a t-shirt saying, oh yeah, we're cops. Whereas Jack actually dons like a full disguise when there was no reason to do so. It's a little odd Lady Di's hand doesn't tremble when she gives Jack the D-cup, given how badly her head does, but I guess the actress is worried about spilling. When Jack runs off with the teacup, Lady Di drops to her knees in defeat the way no elderly person could. I was going to skip over the scene before this, in which Lady Di called her agent just to assure him the benefit- Fuck. <laughs> I was going to completely skip over the scene before this, in which Lady Di called her agent just to assure him the benefit concert is still on, as it was complete padding, but now I think I'll bring it up for that very reason. Some crazy-ass stuff happens between Jack retrieving the teacup and the next scene, but it all happens off-screen, which is buck-wild given the amount of padding in this episode. I can only assume they couldn't afford to shoot in a police station and or hospital, so they just plumb skipped over how Mickey and Ryan got away from the cops and why elderly, concussed Birdie was allowed to leave the hospital and have them just show up at the benefit concert. Thinking Lady Di still has the teacup, Mickey, Ryan, and Birdie plan to steal it the moment she goes on stage. Well, points for keep it simple, stupid. Fortunately, Jack happens to show up for reasons unknown and completely squashes that terrible plan. Ryan's line is difficult to hear, but I think he actually scolds Jack for not getting the cup sooner. I don't know. None of this makes sense. It don't matter. Love it. It don't matter. It don't matter. None, None of, this, of this matters. matters. 
Lady Di's agent or manager shows up just to open her trailer door so she can be revealed impersonating the Crypt Keeper before face planting at their feet. They clearly save their makeup budget for these final moments because her oldest form looks worlds better than her penultimate form. The reaction shots of the others strike a real chord with me because I frequently wear the same expressions while watching this show. Unfortunately, despite again being staged in depth, they're also once again so overlapped they look like a Byzant Byzantine? Byzantine, yeah. Unfortunately, despite again being staged in depth, they're also once again so overlapped they look like a Byzantine depiction of Catholic saints. Commercial break? All right, Hill Street, are you ready for our new possibly recurring segment? Everyone's favorite game, Guess the Lyrics? <gasps> yes, I'm ready. Early in this episode, we hear a song other than the I'm a Little Teapot power ballad that's going to form the foundation of this episode's musical score. We get one other song from Lady Die in this episode, and I think I've figured out most of the lyrics but uh, I want to hear your take on it. So what I'm going to do now is I'm going to go ahead and play it. You're going to listen. And then I want you to walk me through what you think the lyrics are, okay? And then we'll compare notes. Copy that. I'm not going to risk actually playing the episode on the podcast. So that will be edited out. But uh, you can find these episodes in their entirety for free on YouTube. So I encourage you to do so. Uh, this particular song starts at about uh, about 2.30 into uh, episode four, A Cup of Time. You ready, Hill Street? Here we go. What are you getting out of that? It's definitely something about... Nope, I already lost it. Hold on. <laughs> well, what you tell, let's just do it line by line. Take a, take, listen, to, listen to just the first line. Stop. Take a beat for editing purposes and then tell me what you think it says. The fire of you still burns deep in the night. Yep, that's exactly what I have. Okay, next line. But that took three listens. <laughs> so... That was, and the wolves of desire, hold on, I need to listen again, because it just makes no sense, so my brain can't comprehend it. And the wolves of desire are glimmering higher. Okay, uh, do me a favor, we diverge on this one, so take one more, take one more listen, you know, sort of, uh, is that your final answer kind of a situation here? Take take one more listen. I understand you've you've only listened to them three or four times. I've listened to them dozens of times, and that does not make me right. I'm just saying it also took me many listens to try to make sense of this. So take one more listen, and then, again, give me your final take on the second line. Let's also remember, one of us has hearing aids here, and one of us doesn't, so... I still hear the wolves of desire are glimmering higher. Higher. Okay, I like where your head's at. I landed on... And the moons of desire, they're burning higher, higher. Okay, let me try to hear that. Hold on. But I do, I do kind of hear the wolves thing, and I definitely like the glittering. I like, I like where yours at. I actually like yours more, but that's what I heard when I did this. Glimmering instead of glittering, but let's see. I think I'm right. I think it's, and the wolves of desire are glimmering higher, higher. Gotcha. I'm hearing a hard L, like a wool, not mmm. Boy, this doesn't this take you back? <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna be hugging does my it ever. radio soon. You mean does this take me back to the best night of my life? <laughs> oh, I'm already sweating. Gives me anxiety. But yeah, I'm hearing an L sound there, and I'm glimmering. It's not burning. It's glimmering. I am sure. I'm going back. Hold on. Yeah. No, I'll, I'll totally uh, agree with you on that. I 
I don't know. I don't somehow I got burning in and then I was like, well, what burns? So maybe she's talking about like a moon being bright, maybe? I don't know. Moon makes sense. Moon makes more sense instead of wolves, but I just don't hear it even when I'm trying to. Hold on, I gotta listen again. I'm pretty confident because I'm not getting a moon. I'm getting a wool sound and is 100% glimmering higher, higher. Yeah. But we'll go ahead. What were you going to say? Okay. I'm half tempted to split the difference. I'm almost, or I guess what I'm wanting to hear now is, and the wolves of desire, they're burning higher, higher, but wolves burning doesn't, doesn't make a lot of sense now, does it? Well, she's definitely not saying burning there because she says burn in the first phrase and it sounds like burn. And she's saying glimmering. She's fucking saying glimmering. I'd bet my fucking life on it. I can hear her saying glimmering. <laughs> yeah, that makes more sense from a songwriting point of view, not reusing the word burn. Um, yeah. I definitely absolutely agree with you on that. So, but you're saying they're, uh, they're glimmering higher, higher? Yeah, it makes no sense. Also, moon would make more sense there. Like you thought you heard and the moons are glimmering higher instead of wolves glimmering. But I... I'm hearing wolves. Yeah, it's it's the higher, higher that ties in with moon to me because either, again, like the moon burning brighter or just, you know, moon being high in the sky, that's that's what I associate with either interpretation of higher as in brighter or like literally higher. But but I'm I'm with you. I'm with you on the burning, not making sense, and then the moon. And I, I like the metaphor of <laughs> I like the metaphor of wolves of desire. That makes a lot more sense than moons of desire, no question. But then, yeah, they're glittering higher. Do things glitter higher? Glimmer. I'm hearing an M sound. Glimmer. Um, okay. No, they don't. I'm I'm not even coming at this from a what makes sense perspective, really. I'm coming at this from a what I'm hearing more than anything. But no, it doesn't make a lick of sense. Not a lick. Okay, I'll tell you what. You know what? We're not even done. We've got three more lines. So why don't you do the next <laughs> three and then we'll circle back and maybe reevaluate, okay? Okay. Something gets hotter like a lamb to the slaughter. Is it the... the hold on. What gets hotter? The Lee? I'm hearing the Lee. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Take take one final listen. I think we're on the same page about like a lamb to the slaughter. Yeah. So again, funny you should mention lambs uh, not too long ago or lamb to the slaughter specifically, because that's right here. I think we're on the same page there, like a lamb to the slaughter. But take one more listen to the first half and then we'll compare because we're surprisingly close. I took my best stab at it and it's pretty much what you just said. But one last listen. Dude, I have no idea. I'm hearing the little, the little gets hotter. <laughs> the leaf gets hotter. The moon, I mean. Yes, yes. That's the, my guess. The That's the best I could do. The leaf gets hotter. <laughs> it's really what it sounds like. Why? What else could it be? I don't know. I gotta listen one more time because it's gonna drive me nuts. What the fuck is that? Oh, I hate this. The leaf gets hotter. I don't know, man. That's all I got. Yeah, I can't think of any other words that start that way except like Lee word, Lee way. But no, it's a it's a one syllable word that starts with L-E, it sounds like. Yeah, I... We need an expert in the New York Times crossword puzzle. <laughs> yeah, really. What could get hot? That sounds with the, starts with the Lee. We're definitely both hearing L-E, right? It's yeah. not B. Not that that would make any more sense. <laughs> no. And I was like, am I hearing moon? Why do we think everything's moon? The moon gets hotter. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, so we agree, uh, like a lamb to the slaughter, that something gets hotter, you're going to burn, you're going to burn, and that's when Mickey turns off the radio. Yep. 
So now knowing what we don't know, does that give us any information to go back and reevaluate what word might have come earlier, like wolf versus moon or burning versus glimmering? Let's see. It's definitely not burning there. It's definitely glimmering. There's no doubt in my mind, but let me listen again. It's 100%. The wolves of desire are glimmering higher, higher. I'll bet my life on it. Okay, okay. And then your best guess is leaf gets hotter. That's all I got. (laughs) (laughs) Between the two of us, that's the best we can do. Yeah, it's really sad. That's all we got. But I mean, it sounds like that. Yeah, um, you know, be an island, Hill Street. (laughs) Time is floating from my mind. I'm an island. (laughs) Folks, if you want to recreate this experience at home, you can do what Hill Street and I did some years ago when asked to decode the lyrics from an obscure 80s Italian pop song for one of my Italian friends. Keep in mind, this song was sung in English. (laughs) And so we thought we might be up to the task. (laughs) I think all we did was make things worse. What, did we spend an hour on that, driving ourselves to the brink of madness, trying to decipher those lyrics? I would say at least two or three hours. I mean, it, that went on and on. I mean, that was that was one of the craziest nights of my life. I still wake up in a cold sweat some nights. <laughs> no, it's got to be. I'm an island. Yeah, we, almost, we broke out into fights, rages, tears. We would recreate it for you here, but since we can't play the song anyway, just go find Play Your Game by one Dave Force and uh, knock yourselves out, but you can't unhear it. So uh, <laughs> remember, when you gaze into the abyss, the abyss also gazes back. Exactly what he said. Best of luck to you, and we'll see you on the other side. (laughs) And then please contact us. Yeah, if you crack it, by all means, we want to know what are those lyrics. Yeah, really. (laughs) We need to know. Seems mighty late for a commercial break, so maybe that was just a fade to black. Oh, well. There's now laundry hanging from the railing above Curious Goods, so I guess some Neapolitans moved in upstairs? So when I wrote that, I threw off what I thought was just some casual offhand racism off the top of my head. But then upon, again, going back another time, scrubbing through the episode, I saw that maybe I was subconsciously influenced by the fact that in one tighter establishing shot than all the others, you can actually see the name of the place next door. And apparently it's Fiorno Brothers Hardware. With the what brothers? Fiorno Brothers which could only be more Italian if the place was called Fiorno Fratelli, Negozio di Ferramenta. That's so funny. <laughs> Are they Neapolitans? Well, perhaps time will tell. You don't have to believe me, but we get closure on Jack's protein supplement problem. Can I get a little bit bigger, a little bit more frustration, like really show? That's okay. the part you're going to spend time on, but not the important stuff? Mm-hmm. You don't have to believe me, but we get closure on Jack's protein supplement problem. We couldn't see Birdie clearing Mickey and Ryan with Lieutenant Fishbine. We couldn't learn what happened to Lady Di's brother to reduce him to bones on a Murphy bed. But we get this? Birdie shows up, apparently completely forgiven her trespasses, and prepares to take the homeless girl to be placed with a family. It's a genuinely pleasant... Ersatz family moment? Ersatz family moment, yeah. It's a genuinely pleasant Ersatz family moment, completely ruined when the girl asks if Birdie wants to play tea party. Everyone laughs delightedly, completely oblivious to the fact that some poor, unknowing family is about to receive their very own young Mistress Mary. That's the end of the episode, but not this script. Episode 1 had its six months ago moment, and this episode has its own reality-shattering time vortex swirling over the whole narrative. Except this time, the writers wisely swept it off screen hoping we wouldn't notice. Follow me down the rabbit hole. Two years ago, a man buys the teacup. 
a little less than a year ago, roughly 70-year-old Lady Di goes missing because she intentionally or unintentionally killed her brother, took the teacup, and aged down to about 30. So in less than a year, her brother's corpse, apparently left to rot on a folded-up Murphy bed, decayed to nothing but bones without simultaneously producing an unbearable stench that the police, or at least Mickey and Ryan the Lion, should have noticed. Apparently for almost a year, no one reported him missing and not one person in the building reported the stench. Maybe he was squatting in a building that still has electricity? Who knows? It wouldn't shock me to learn that Canada leaves the electricity on just in case someone might want to squat there someday. More to the point, a woman over 70 whose taste runs toward nursery rhymes became a famous North America touring musician in less than a year. Yes, the DJ has a throwaway line about her being an overnight success, but how? Was she already a talented musician who was also current on late 80s musical trends despite being over 70? How did she hit the ground running like that? And let's just be honest, she's very attractive, but in the image-obsessed late 80s culture, how many musicians were starting their career at 30? And if your question for me is, why would a man whose shirt says genius at work spend all of his time watching a children's cartoon show? Well, I withdraw my question. <laughs> and cut. So uh, what are your thoughts on this episode? Um, I enjoyed this episode. It was definitely a sillier episode. <laughs> like you really had to suspend belief more than you usually do on this episode for so many reasons. I mean, obviously the makeup at the end when she's aged, I enjoyed it. it. Like I said, it was nostalgic for me. So I enjoyed that, but can't say it was realistic or winning any awards. Um, just the very idea of people drinking this stuff from a total stranger in the park at night you really had to go along with that one are you familiar with the expression nothing like a hot drink to cool you off is that a thing not that i've heard i mean i guess on a science level it makes sense because if you if you heat up your core temperature i think the air around you is supposed to feel cooler Yes, and the closest thing I can think of that I've heard of that's something remotely like this is that I've heard the explanation, the reason why many cultures that eat spicy food are also cultures that live in hot environments is because, yes, it actually has that effect of kicking the body's natural reaction to the heat um, into overdrive and actually starts cooling you down. I just, the way she says it, like it's an expression just seems so strange to me. Yeah, I know. It's it's definitely not a common phrase, but um, there's some science backing that up. Yeah, that's right. It's actually, strangely, apparently the same reason why like some nomads and Bedouins in the deserts actually wear all black, if you've ever seen that. like You see the people in white, and you're like, oh, that makes sense. It's reflecting the sun, but the ones in black, apparently, it actually creates heat, but what that does is it causes airflow that comes in through the bottom of their garments and then passes over you and then escapes through the top, so that cooling actually results in the same overall body temperature as the people that are wearing all white and just reflecting the sun. Interesting. Don't say we never taught you anything on this podcast, okay? These are some facts we're throwing at you. That's right. So we pivot, Hill Street. We pivot. <laughs> we're primarily a Friday the 13th, the series review show, but we're going to pivot to world knowledge and general esoterica. Yeah, we're also fans of Bill Nye here, okay? Darn right. So yeah, uh, sorry, last thought on this whole hot tea <laughs> thing. To better understand what was going on, and I think I actually made a little bit of progress, 
you're not going to believe this, but I actually made a grid. Help me try to make sense of this. First instance, it's hot, it's night, the individual is sober, it's a teen girl, and it's tea. Second time, it's cold, it's night, the individual is drunk, it's an adult man, and it's tea again. <laughs> Third time, it's cold, well, at least I presume it's cold because they're wearing jackets, it's night, uh, individual status is unknown because Lady Di gets interrupted. It's again an adult man, and again, we don't actually know because she had to abort the mission. Probably T. Uh, fourth time, now this is actually Birdie when she gets her hands on the cup. Uh, we don't technically know if it's hot or cold, no real evidence either way. It's night, the individual is probably drunk. Again, adult man, and this time though, booze. Last instance, we don't actually know if it's hot or cold, but it's early morning, probably cool. She says, fine morning. So yeah, sort of dawn, early morning. The individual is sober because it's actually Jack Marshak, so adult man. And then it is, it is reverted back to being tea. The only time it was booze being offered was from Birdie, who I'm gonna have to say in her one outing, seems like she's far better at the game than Lady Di ever was, despite her 10,000 hours of practice, because she actually offers drunk guys booze, which makes way more sense yep. than offering tea to either drunk men or a teen girl, whether it's hot or cold. And last thought on that, if you're gonna offer tea because it's hot, I don't know, why not iced tea? You said it, the first scene where she offers tea to this random girl in the middle of the night, I thought, who? Who in their right mind? I don't care how desperate you are. We just take teacup. I mean, that is your first thought has to be I'm about to die because I would be mine. Yeah, it absolutely seems like a Silver Age Batman villain or something. Yeah, it's just so ridiculous. You have to expect her to pull like little uh, crustless cucumber sandwiches out of her pocket to go with it. When Birdie was like, oh, let's share a nightcap and gives a drunk guy booze out of the cup. I thought, now that is totally plausible and makes sense. Yeah, I mean, I know I said it in the script, but it was so weird to me. It's like they filmed in order and course corrected as they went. Who do you think Lady Di was imitating? Who did they base her on? It's an interesting question. Physically, there was a little bit of, um, I'm not gonna blink on her name, I have it. It's right there. It's the woman that sings too careless. That's why I love you. Cindy Lauper? That's Cindy. Yes, yeah, Cindy Lauper. They had her like hair with the weird outfits. The The look was a little bit Cindy Lauper to me, yes. Not the sound. The couple names that I have to toss out were Blondie, Pat Benatar, Stevie Nicks. I personally did not get any Madonna. Did you feel any Madonna was in there? No, no. Much harder, more Joan Jett. Pat Benatar, like you said, Blondie. Stevie Nicks, not so much. I think too hardcore for Stevie Nicks because she had that like, whatever, lamb to the slaughter song or something. They definitely gave her an edgier sound for sure. You're leaning toward Blondie or Pat Benatar maybe? Pat Benatar, yeah. And maybe a little bit of Joan Jett in there too. Put another dime in the jukebox, baby. It's actually kind of amazing of all the female artists from that era that you would mention Pat Benatar because even in the previous episode when I was talking about this episode, doing the little preview of things to come, that was the name I threw out. Oh, really? Yeah. Last episode, I said something to the effect of if you want to hear I'm a Little Teapot as if it were a power ballad sung by Pat Benatar. <laughs> That's funny. I agree. 
kind of amazing to me that we got through this episode and Ryan the Lion barely hit on Mickey. I know. He almost seemed borderline irritated with her a few times in this episode. I was like, oh, is the power dynamic shifting here? That would be fascinating if suddenly he was no longer into her and now she's now she's kind of chasing him. I know. I totally, I totally dig that vibe. I want that to happen. I want her to be asking him out and he's like, meh, I'm not feeling it anymore. Just for my own sanity, I'm going to go ahead and say that technically he still does a little bit. By the show's standards, it was pretty mild, but that little bit where he mentions that she looks better in the limo driver outfit than he does, it's a gray area, but I'll count it. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, that's true. I forgot about that. But definitely a light flirt episode, yeah. Once again, perhaps they're course correcting in real time. The show is becoming self-aware. Yeah, they're like, huh, that was an odd choice we made. Let's double back. One thing in this episode that really surprised me was like the agent manager character. Because usually agents and managers are portrayed as the worst people. But this guy was really cool. Oh, yeah, he was great. Yeah. I definitely thought in that scene when um, Kristen, the girl that's in a lot of the episode and eventually gets her hands on the teacup, when she goes up to the craft services table to get something to eat, I was certain he was going to shoo her away. But he was like, oh, yeah, go ahead. Help yourself. I know, justice for him, you know, because they really humanized him and uh, they don't opt that, you know, they didn't go for the cliche, which is like, oh, everybody in show business, especially the agents and managers are all dicks. They made him a nice guy, which I appreciated. I found that a more interesting choice. I want to see like the super tragic version of this episode where then after she, after Lady Di comes tumbling out of her trailer as a, as the crypt keeper, <laughs> we get it. We get one more scene where Mickey and Ryan and Jack have to explain to him like what happened and why he's out of a job and it just shatters his reality and he'll never be the same again. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) exactly. (coughs) Yeah, he really bet on a losing horse there. Speaking of Kristen, who plays again the young homeless girl, that actress is uh, Lisa Jacob and fun fact, she was the little girl in Mrs. Doubtfire and then uh, would show up as the teen girl that lives in the trailer park, uh, Randy Quaid's daughter, in Independence Day. Oh, good for her. She had a good career. Have you uh, seen both of those films? Yes. What did you think of some of our new people? We had a Hillary Shepard playing Lady Di, Maxine Miller as Birdie, Richard Fitzpatrick, Lieutenant Fishbine, and then uh, again, Kristen, played by Lisa Jacob. To be honest, the homeless girl, Lisa Jacob, she didn't make like a massive impression on me in this. I enjoyed Lady Di quite a bit. I thought she did a great job. I loved Birdie, played by Maxine Miller. I thought she was perfect for that. Um, Lieutenant Fishbine was was good. I I probably enjoyed his character even more than I was supposed to. So I thought this was I thought this was a really solid episode. Now knowing that Lisa Jacob went on to do those good roles, I wish she had made more of an impression. But for some reason, I thought she was just my focus was elsewhere, probably in the more dramatic characters. But yeah, I especially loved Birdie. I really, really loved Birdie. I just thought she was... I wasn't sure for a minute there if I trusted her or not, which I think we weren't supposed to be sure. So I thought she did that really well. Yeah, I'm completely with you. Um, I mean, would you say that uh, Maxine Miller as Birdie was your favorite performance of the episode? Yes. I also really enjoyed uh, Lieutenant Fishbine, probably more than I should. But yeah, if I have to give it to someone, I'm, I'm giving it to uh, Maxine Miller as Birdie and good for her. That woman is still working today. Amazing. Absolutely incredible. And yeah, Kristen, uh, Lisa Jacob. Yeah, not a standout, but I have to say one thing that continues to amaze me is how good this show is at casting uh, young actors. 
as in children. I know. That is not an easy thing to do either. It's really not. Yeah, they are consistently really good at it. I guess child actors are Canada's greatest natural resource. <laughs> what did you think about the drunks? Uh, not bad, I guess. Being drunk is a very hard thing to play. So if someone can do it and not be god-awful, my hat is off. I think the teen girl in the park at the beginning who dies did a good job. But uh, yeah, I was not impressed with really any of the, the homeless guys. Then again, I've never had to play drunks, so not my area of expertise. For a long time, I thought they basically just cast background. They're just like, this guy looks like he could play the role. Let's just throw him in. Can, hey, guy, can you do a passable drunk? Okay, yeah, good enough. Get in there. In some cases, I thought it was almost creepy how long the scene goes on without the drunk person talking. And I'm like, oh, okay, that's the result of not wanting to pay them to have a line. <laughs> oh, no, you, you did eventually let him speak. So I guess that wasn't it. But or maybe or maybe you heard the performance and you're like, okay, let's cut this down to the absolute least number of lines we can possibly have. <laughs> that's probably true. What did you think of this episode's music? This this power ballad of I'm a Little Teacup? Um, that was a freaking weird-ass choice. I kind of liked it because it was so weird and interesting, but I just cannot imagine being around, like, the writer's table or whatever and saying, like, hey, what if we do, like, a, like, powerful rendition of I'm a Little Teapot? Like, who, who pitched that? And everyone else is like, yeah. I just can't imagine that conversation. It was so odd. But it just, it... It just so works with the spoofiness of the show, <laughs> which I don't think they meant it to be weird or spoofy or campy, but it is. Yeah, camp is the exact word I was going to use. If it was intentionally trying to be campy, then yeah, you knocked it out of the park. But in all other cases, no, no, you ran backwards around the bases and then tripped over home. Yeah, exactly. It's it's so silly. It's so silly that it works, but... If it's not supposed to be silly, like, what the fuck were you thinking? Yeah, if it's not supposed to be silly, then whoopsie doodle do, my friend. You, <laughs> to quote Todd Berry, you forgot to not do that. <laughs> you might be excited to learn. Uh, next episode, Hill Street, episode five, is the Halloween episode. Yay! <laughs> it is interesting that it breaks from many of the established conventions so far. It's a real anomaly within the first five. So uh, I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. But yeah, it's really interesting and has... Some of the best stuff the show has had so far. Yay! Oh my god, that's exciting. Cool. So, uh, yeah, we will talk next episode. I should probably stop referring to weeks, since at best the show comes out bi-weekly. And uh, even then, <laughs> we'll, fingers crossed that trend continues. <laughs> so, yes, next episode we will get together and watch the Halloween episode. I'm looking forward to it. Yay! Thanks, guys. Bye! Thanks for listening, everyone. We know you have a lot of choices when choosing a Friday the 13th the series podcast, and we sincerely thank you for choosing ours. Is Jason in the background or something? Do I just need to look harder? Special thanks to Joshua Romeo for original music, and to Stephen Yu for original art. If you want to support our show, you can leave a review and rate us five stars on Apple Podcasts. If you want an occasional update on our projects, you can sign up for our newsletter at the Inner Demon Entertainment website. And if you want to follow us on social media, honestly, we don't like social media. We're not good at social media, but links can be found on our website. Next episode is a twofer, a Halloween episode and the return of Uncle Louis Vendredi. Take care until then. And always remember what Carl said to Frylock. It don't matter. None of this matters. Good night, everybody.